Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in each episode, I'll be looking at some slice of HP Lovecraft's work. For now, I've been look we've been looking at pretty much one story per episode, um, and uh, later on, we'll be looking at mixtures of different uh, assorted writing, his letters, uh, his poems. Certainly, we'll we'll take up some of those. Um, but for now, I'm trying to get through the stories published in before nine before and during 1919 that's going to be like unit one then we'll do some of his other writing from that period including some of his letters and then move on to some of the stories of the of the 20s uh when we get to longer stories we'll be probably breaking those up into numerous episodes depending on how much i have to say about them and and probably a lot the main themes of this podcast if you're just joining us are going to be uh lovecraft's politics his historical context his uh the, the discourse about race that Lovecraft was involved in, the discourse about Atlantic history and about immigration and all of those various themes. So, um, you know, there's always, there's pretty much there's always something to talk about in relation to those themes in, in one of Lovecraft's stories. And so, um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, so this episode, I'll be looking at uh, the story, The Transition of Juan Romero, which essentially means like the death of Juan Romero. Uh, he, this was written in 1919, along with all the other stories we'll be looking at until um, for the next four or five stories were all written in 1919. It wasn't published until 1944. It was never published during his lifetime. He never sought to have it published. It was, um, it was only actually revealed to anyone else in 1932 uh, when his, his friend, uh, our R.H. Barlow typed it up, and, and later on, after he died, it got published in um, by Arkham House, actually, in, a, in an edited volume. So uh, it's a good story, and I think it's an important story for, for looking at uh, a lot of, of Lovecraft's just, you know, the, the, the general themes of Lovecraft that we all sort of know, but also some of the more, uh, the, the themes I'm trying to get at here. So I, I think this is a kind of a, Maybe not a key. It's not a. It's not a skeleton key text in any sense, but it is a, a text that that speaks to a lot of his different issues. It's that that dealing with race and especially Atlantic history in this case. Um, so it's uh, yeah. It's also got a lot of issues of class, which is something I'm also interested in in Lovecraft's writings. In fact, this story is is pretty distinctive, um, in that not unique but fairly distinctive in that it has a working class hero. And the story we'll be looking at next, The White Ship, also has a working class hero. It's a very, very different type of story. That's a dreamland story. It's a Duncey. It's Lovecraft is trying to the, the a Duncey approach, which is this, you know, these kind of dreamlike uh, imaginings of, of odd worlds in different places. And um, this story is much more grounded. It, it actually does read like some of his later stories um in that it's it's worldly it's grounded it's a, it's a horror story it's a straight up horror story and it's it will read it'll be familiar to people who maybe have read stories like the call of cthulhu or the whisper in darkness or those kind of classic lovecraft texts from the 20s and 30s you can read this and and feel at home reading this particular story um, and it doesn't quite fit into some of the other stories he was writing in in this period 1919 like polaris I guess Polaris was a little bit earlier, wasn't it? 1918, he wrote that one. 
Um, but certainly the white ship, the dune that came to Sarnath, and those type of stories that kind of hover around it are quite different. And, and maybe that's a reason Lovecraft didn't pursue to get this published yet. It really wasn't the voice he was seeking out at the time. He started out seeking more of a, a kind of Dunsey voice. Uh, but he also wrote Poesque stories at the time, obviously, such as... Uh, um, such as uh, the statement of Randall Carter. But this is, I think, very much a Lovecraft story. It's it's not, I don't get the same feeling that he's copying. It doesn't, the style of anyone else. So it's it's a striking, it's an important one to read. And, and not just for what's in the story, but for its, its pre, kind of foreshadowing some of the styles he'll, he'll write, he'll, he'll pursue later on. The big difference, though, it's a very short tale. It's like these other early Lovecraft stories and that it's quite short. It gets right to the point. Uh, but a lot of interesting stuff going on in this story. So let's uh, jump right into it. So the core events of the story are set in 1894 uh, at a place called the Norton Mine. It's, it's just out in the West. Uh, in fact, this story is set in a very key period in the history of the American West. And it's, it's, it's a time the West is transforming into something something quite different um, from its from its frontier days um, into kind of a into a, a frontier of commodities it's something I've actually been looking at in my series on uh, Francis Parkman jr on my main podcast series which has been kind of looking that kind of looks at the history of the West and I, I talked about a key theme in those tales is the transformation of the West from a from a frontier to a to a a, a produce a, a region producing commodities for for an emerging American and even global capitalism, whether it's metals or wheat or meat or or whatever, and it, this required the changing landscape of the of of the frontier. Um, and Lovecraft seems to be aware of this because he kind of talks about this quite directly um, here. But as it does so, it it brings this, these encounters between. Uh, white Americans and and Mexicans and indigenous people, and that's something talked about in this story as well. Um, and it and for Lovecraft's interest here, it's this changing the landscape of the West leads to revelations and discoveries of things uh, much older, much deeper, and and much uh, uh, you know kind of forgotten truths about about reality that have been neglected but are but are re kept in the mind of certain people in this case it's an indigenous person juan romero who's, who's clearly identified here as an indigenous american but then there's also kind of a global context that's why i think it does kind of speak to the worldliness of a, of a tale like the call of cthulhu and that you have a global tapestry here because our narrator although he's just a working class guy he used to spend time in india and he has this hindu ring which becomes a, a an important i don't know so much of a plot device but it becomes a something we're drawn it our attention is drawn to at various times in the story as important and it somehow connects to these happenings in the the americas and of course the old world and the new world weren't connected historically in terms of modern history until the late 15th, early 16th century, the Columbian Exchange, the, the Spanish conquest of the Americas. Um, so there's a kind of a suggestion of something even going back deeper than, than, um, than the Columbian Exchange almost, right? Uh, it's, you know, maybe back to the days of Pangaea, but I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think scientists had a clear understanding of continental drift uh, in 1919. 
I think that was kind of a later uh, realization. Of course, uh, there was weird. I mean, people would find sea fossils on land, and you know, where did this come from? And this, of course, is key to people beginning to rethink geology. And uh, but I don't. It took later for people to realize that actually these continents are moving, and places that are above ground now, above water now, may have been underwater in some other time because of the shifting of the continents. Um, so, but you know. Maybe then, if, if it's not continental drift, there's something kind of another kind of weird network that connected these these the 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 pre-Columbian America and and India in some way. That connection is really hinted at here, and it's not explained. It's not except maybe it's underground networks. There's there's certainly the discovery here of an underground cavern that seems to be infinite. So its extent we don't know. Um, but certainly this connection between Native American, Mexican, you know, Aztec traditions with this Hindu ring is fascinating because at the time Lovecraft's writing this, the world is being interconnected. The Americas are being connected to the fate of India, right? You end up with this global economy and, you know, an integrated world where ideas, traditions can pass around and that's something Lovecraft is very anxious about that's one of his fears seems to be of, of immigration is that these immigrants at least as in the stories but to a lesser degree in his nonfiction writing in his letters he talks about this kind of stuff too it's that these immigrants sort of bring with them traditions these vernacular uh, traditions that I've been talking about uh, in the previous episodes in stories like um, uh, even in The Alchemist one of his earliest tales so the the global the global nature of this story even though it's set in one little small place in the american west i think is it's hard to avoid and it's really really striking all right so we're first introduced to our our narrator and he's also, we're also told that this is going to be the story of of the transition of juan romero which is of course the title of of the tale this is this is, he's writing this some years after the events of the story so Assuming it was written, this narrator is writing these events in 1919, it's been like 25 years since these events took place. So he's a fairly old man now, uh, because by the, by the time the events of the story take place, he's already, this character, this narrator's already had a lot of history of globetrotting and, and working in other places, including India. So we, he would kind of get the suggestion that he's middle-aged. And so he would be quite old when he's writing that on this tale. And he wants to write it before before he dies he wants to to write it down even though no one will believe him so the the type of narrator here is, is something we've seen before in for instance dagon um, uh, but he doesn't want to tell much about his own past he says my past isn't important who i am is not important my origin doesn't need to be related to posterity he says um, quote for when a man suddenly migrates to the states or the colonies he leaves his past behind him Right. So we're right away early in this tale being introduced to a theme that I think is very key to understanding Lovecraft, and that is the sea and and the Atlantic history. Now, I generally think Lovecraft's on the side that the sea is not much of a barrier to knowledge. Right. Uh, the whole point of the white ship, not maybe about the whole point, but a big, strong part of the white ship story, which is the next one we'll look at is the sea being a conduit of knowledge, of being a carrier of information, of being a storyteller in its own right, right? And obviously in stories like the horror at Red Hook, the sea through immigrants or in the Call of Cthulhu, the sea is 
a conduit for for communication between cultists, between kind of a way of connecting together this vernacular knowledge, right? The case of Charles Dexter Ward has that too with slaves in a very, very subtle way, right? So in a real sense, I don't think Lovecraft believes the sea abolishes this. He's just kind of coming at it more from this kind of American ideology that, you know, you're kind of a new man when you come to, to the Americas. But I don't think he really believes that the sea vanishes those connections because one point of the story seems to be the, the very undefined, unexplained, but clear connection between this, this Indian ring, it's what's called a Hindu ring throughout the story, and this pit they find in the, in the course of the story that seems to be connected to the cult of Huitzapuktali, which is, of course, an Aztec god. So he talks about his service in India. So maybe he's British, I guess. Although he doesn't want to say who he's, where he's from, the narrator, where he's from. But let's presume he's, he's British. So he served in India, maybe as a soldier, maybe as a, some kind of sailor or a laborer. He's part of the international working class, though. And that's, I think, what's striking about this tale is he is not, his hero is not a New England uh, esoteric. His hero here is a globe-trotting member of the working class. The very, very people who will be so threatening in so many of his later tales because they carry with them these, these traditions. And maybe unknowingly our narrator is somehow conveying something through this ring. In fact, he himself is interested in ancient lore. Quote, I was more at home amongst white-bearded native teachers than my brother officers. So he's in the military, obviously. I have delved not a little into odd Eastern lore when overtaken by the calamities which brought about my new life in the American West, a life where I find it well to accept my name, my present one, which is very common and carries no meaning. So again, he's saying we don't need to know much about my past, but he says here, you know, I was deep into, I was pretty into this weird stuff, this weird shit. When I said, okay, I'm going to pick up and go to America. And some event happens, and we're not told what that event is. Although, we probably want to believe that it has something to do with that ring he wears with him. So, in 19, 1894, 1894, he becomes a common laborer in this Norton mine, which was recently discovered. And this is part of this transformation of the West I was referring to, this changing of the frontier. You know, of course, this meant the abolition of, of Native American civilizations. But not entirely. I think Lovecraft is well aware here that Native Americans are, of course, key. Juan Romero himself is unambiguously indigenous here. I mean, it's, it's clearly stated, although he has a, a Mexican name, his biology is fully non-European, right? Unlike many people in Mexico who have uh, mixed ancestry through centuries of the Spanish conquest, you know, intermixing between settlers and Indian people. He doesn't. He is purely Indian. Except for, so his name's a bit of a distraction from that fact. So although the Indians have been militarily defeated, pushed to reservations, eradicated, their entire culture eradicated as the case of the Aztecs, something's alive in them. I mean, there's some memory of it in the people and in their traditions and in their beliefs. Right? So... Um, what are they doing here? Well, in this case, they're looking for gold. So it's a gold mine. 
So they find gold here and this company starts to exploit this gold and dig into it and they go into these tunneling operations in the in the mountain in order to find more um, gold. And we're, we're given the name of the boss, Mr. Arthur, the superintendent of the mine, and he thinks there's possibly a chain of caves and he thinks that this could be really the center of future mining operations. So a network of caves uh, throughout underneath this this mountain which of course is is what we're led to believe actually does exist down there some kind of network of caves right and you know where does this come from well he explains oroferous cavities as a result of the actions of water and he'd be the last of them would be open would soon be opened so there's some kind of geological explanation given for for why this network of caves seem to exist having something to do with the water and i don't know enough about geography geology or especially the geology of lovecraft's time to to comment on that but i'm sure if we dig around we might find some you know geological theories referring to to groundwater and caves and all that kind of stuff um so it then juan romero gets this job at the same mine after our narrator and here's his description it's it's, it's a racial description he's native that's what we're told Quote, one of the large herd of unkept Mexicans attracted thither from the neighboring country. He at first commanded attention only because of his features, which though plainly of the Rend Indian type, were yet remarkable for their light color and refined conformant, being vastly unlike those of the average greaser or pute of the locality. It is curious that although he differed so widely from the mass of Hispanicized and tribal Indians, Romero gave not the least impression of Caucasian blood. It was not the Castilian conquistador or the American pioneer, but the ancient and noble Aztec whom imagination came called to view when the silent peon would rise in the early morning and gaze in fascination at the sun as it crept across the eastern hills. Meanwhile, stretching out his arms to the orb as if in the performance of some rite whose nature he did not yet himself comprehend. But save for his face, Romero was not in any way suggestive of nobility. Ignorant and dirty, he was at home among the other brown-skinned Mexicans having come from the lowest sort of surroundings. And then we get his background, and he's told he's basically an orphan, a plague orphan. His, his parents died when he was a child in a plague. He survived, and he was later found. And so he has no identity, no, no name. And then he's raised by Mexican cattle thieves, cattle rustlers, and that's how he gets his name Juan Romero. So break this down uh, a little bit. Uh, he's a sun worshiper. So although he has no connection culturally to his ancestry, he's raised by Mexican horse thieves or cattle thieves. He has the blood of, Az of Aztecs, although not noble blood. You know, Lovecraft, of course, seems to believe that you can identify people's nobility somehow on their physical characteristics. We've seen enough evidence of that already. Um, and class status somehow does manifest physically in various ways. Um, but he somehow unconsciously worships the sun. When he gets up, we're told he performs some rite whose nature he didn't himself comprehend. Like it comes organically to him to worship the sun. And, and then, of course, obviously he's, he's, he's indigenous, right? So as an indigenous person, he has some sort of knowledge that the other uh, Mexicans don't. So although culturally Mexican, by blood indigenous, this tradition lives within him 
And I think this is really, really fascinating and, and interesting and suggests so much of what Lovecraft, you know, thinks about race and, and racial legacy and heritage and, and tradition. So anyways, uh, our narrator meets Juan Romero. We get his background story. And, and then we have this weird connection between Romero and this, what's called a Hindu ring. This uh, ring he picked up somewhere in, in, uh, in India when he was a soldier there. Um, and he says he wears it when he's not in active labor. Um, and he doesn't want to say where he got it from. So there's a, a lot, there's some backstory here about how he got this ring, um, probably dealing with the studies of the occult or whatever. Um, and Lovecraft here writes, it's hoary hieroglyphs seem to stir some faint recollection in his untutored but active mind, though he could not possibly have beheld their like before. So on some level, there's some, he's got, he's got some recognition of what this is. And so I think it's somehow connected to his own relationship with, with Aztec mythology, which he seems to have based on his worshiping of, of the sun, right? Now, the, the climax of the story is some interaction with Huitzilopochtli, who is the sun god, the Aztec sun god, um, which was the dominant religion in the years before the, Azte the Spanish conquest of, of Spain. If you ever have the chance, a really uh, interesting book to read, I think it's called Broken Spears. It's, it's Nahualto, which is the Mexican uh, language at the time. Uh, you know, records of the Spanish conquest. It's a, just a primary source collection, like a little anthology of translations of these Aztec, you know, texts of the survivors of the Spanish conquest and the smallpox plague that, that came with it. And you, you get this kind of Aztec perspective on this conquest. Very, very interesting sources to, to look at. Um, but you see in those, you know, the dominance of the, of the Huitzilopochtli uh, cult. So after this, uh, some kind of connection between Juan Romero and this ring, which again is never fully explained. It's only <clears throat> subtly alluded to in the climax of the story. We get word that the mining company is going to dig into these caves a little bit, these, these subterranean mines and things to try to find out more, more gold. Obviously, that's what they're looking for. And they do this. They use dynamite and they blow it up and they get the discovery of this, of this abyss down there. Here's how it's described. Quote, upon investigation, it was seen that a new abyss yawned indefinitely below the seat of the blast, an abyss so monstrous that no handy light might fathom it, nor any light illuminate it. Baffled, the excavator sought a conference with the superintendent who ordered great lengths of rope to be taken to the pit and spliced and lowered without cessation till a bottom might be discovered. Um, and they don't. Um, the pale-faced workmen, that's how they're described. They're miners, right? So they're not out in the sun. Um, and they're not able to get to the bottom. And the conclusion is that it's somehow kind of an infinite void. So you know, that joined with the idea that there's these kind of network of caves that they discovered. I think there's a kind of a subterranean, uh, some, something subterranean is going on here that's connecting these Aztec religions and this Hindu religion. That's what I think is, is really the key of the story here. Uh, and then you literally have a network of, of kind of occultic knowledge underneath the ground. 
Now, I'm just going to jump in there because at some point I do want to talk a little bit about Stephen King in this podcast. Stephen King wrote a novel in which you have a mining community in the West that's digging. And when digging, they find some essentially ancient gods. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty good novel called Desperation. It was written in the 90s when King was kind of experimenting, kind of breaking free of his early career where he explored you know, a lot of straight-up horror, really influenced by EC Comics, uh, dealing a lot with childhood. You know, that all culminates with the novel of It. And then after that, he experiments with different types of novels like Eyes of the Dragon and, and Misery. And in the 90s, he starts to remake himself again, doing really kind of high-level, you know, high-level, almost nearly kind of almost philosophical kind of uh, novels. Uh, Desperation... Um, What's the other? The Regulators, uh, Insomnia, right? And eventually he completes the Dark Tower stuff. So that's kind of a different phase in his career where he's, he's kind of exploring different issues. Um, but that's something maybe we can talk about at some point in the future. But what's cool here is, is that novel, Desperation, has, has the very same idea of, of like some ancient deity or monsters gods really is what they are in desperation are revealed through through mining and then try they try to cover it up right and the, the climax of that novel is actually the covering up the the ceiling forever of those gods in the underground which is not normally a king approach to things king's usually not so much about covering up and obliterating but he's very lovecraftian i think in that and i don't know if he was influenced by the story at all but it's got that same kind of thing here so um, now, after the revelation, revelation of this abyss, um, Romero starts to respond to it. In fact, there's, there's three or four noises that get repeated for the rest of the story. One is a lone coyote. Second are, the, are dogs. And then you got the wind. And then finally, Romero, uh, Juan Romero, kind of doing his chanting and, and, and voicing some kind of response to this. Now, it starts out just the, like the coyote and the dog, so it's kind of explicable. But Romero's participation in these, this almost call and response of noises that seem to be unleashed by this abyss, you know, kind of lifts it to another, um, to the level of the supernatural. Quote, I listened wondering what the sound he, what sound he met, meant. The coyote, the dog, the storm, all were audible. The last named now gaining ascendancy as the wind shrieked more and more frantically. Flashes of lightning were visible through the bunkhouse windows. I questioned the nervous Mexican repeating the sounds I heard. El Quixote, El Perro, El Vinto. But Romero did not reply. He then commenced whispering in awe. El ritmo, senor. El ritmo de la tierra. That throbbed down in the ground. So Juan Romero is hearing a f kind of a a fourth or fifth sound, depending on how you're counting here, if you're including Romero's response, you know, at least a fourth sound, the throb, some sounds from deep in the abyss. And then he starts hearing it, the neighbor starts hearing it, and they are, they're, they're basically, uh, I don't want to say human, but they're, they're artificial sounds, right? They have a rhythm. He says they have a rhythm. And... You know, perhaps it was like the pulsing of the engines far down in a great liner, as sensed from a deck. Yet it was not mechanical, not so devoid of the element of life and consciousness. All of its qualities, remoteness in the earth, most impressed me. To my mind rushed fragments of a passage in Joseph Glanville, which poet quoted with tremendous effect. 
the vastness, profundity, and unsearchableness of his works, which have a depth of them greater than the well-loved Democritus. So Romero looks up from his bunk. He looks at the ring. He looks at the mine shaft. So again, a connection between whatever's going on in the mine shaft and this, this Hindu ring. Um, and in the same paragraph, and we're getting towards the end of the story here, and in the next paragraph, it's, we're literally called there the chanting in the depths, right? So we've gone from a kind of a throbbing to something maybe mechanical, but not quite mechanical, right? Something that ha that's not devoid of the element in life to literally chanting, the chanting in the depths grew into a volume of distinctiveness and we felt irresistibly urged into the storm, thence to the gaping blackness of the shaft. And so they finally are able to, cut, they, they sneak in, they sneak over, because they're not working on the, the shaft. That's not their job. So they're just kind of seeing the second hand initially and hearing about it. But now they go to this and it's a stormy night because we've got the wind and the coyote, you know, the dog, the coyote and the wind and the storm that's growing. And they get to it and then they start to uh, descend into the shaft to get closer to this, the sound. Um, and Lovecraft writes, as we descended into the shaft, the sound grew, the sound beneath grew definitely composite. It struck me as horribly like the sort of oriental ceremony with beatings of drums and chanting of many voices. I have, as you're aware, been much in India. So he relates this chanting to something he experienced in, in India, right? And again, he's very vague about whatever he experienced in India, maybe because Lovecraft didn't really know, and he's just sort of making stuff up. You know, it's, you know, is it the, the cult of Kali? Maybe that's what I sort of want to think he's involved with here is the cult of Kali, because Kali is, of course, uh, I don't know if, not really a destroyer god, but definitely a, a kind of deviant subculture god, right? And, you know, a, a god of destruction and death. And Huizopoktali, although a sun god, has that same element of, it's also sort of a god of war and a god of violence. And, and of course, that's all those human sacrifices that the Aztecs engaged in were, you know, worshiping Huizopoktali. So um, with this, Romero begins, uh, runs off deeper into the shaft, leaving our narrator behind. Yet he can continue to hear Juan Romero make various sounds and noises, and one of which he hears is finally the first mention of it, uh, Huitzilopochtli. Uh, that so we get the actual name of the god, which he he seems to know. No, he said later I placed the word in the works of a great historian. So at the time he didn't know it, he didn't understand the relationship, the what this god was. He just heard the the name. Um, yeah. Our, uh, Leslie Klinger doesn't give say too much about it. Huitzilopochtli just mentioned he's an Aztec, a solar deity and god of war of the Aztecs. Um, but very, very important at the at the moment, the decades prior to the Spanish conquest, he was the dominant um, god worshipped among the Aztecs at the time, and um, you know connected in some way to to the human sacrifices that were so well documented um, during and after the Spanish conquest. Okay, so with this, we get the climax of the story, and this is the, the, trans, the, the transition of Juan Romero that the title refers to, his death, because Juan Romero does die. I'll read the whole paragraph. The climax of that awful night was composite but fairly brief, beginning just as I reached the final cavern of the journey. 
Out of the darkness immediately ahead burst a final shriek from the Mexican, which was joined by such a chorus of uncouth sound as I could never again hear and survive. In that moment, it seemed as if all the hidden terrors and monstrosities of Earth had become articulate in an effort to overwhelm the human race. Simultaneously, the light from my ring was extinguished, and I saw a new light glimmer from a lower space but a few yards ahead of me. I had arrived at the abyss, which was now readily aglow, and which had evidently swallowed up the unfortunate Romero. Advancing, I peered over the edge of the chasm, which no light could fathom, and which was now a pandemonium of flickering flame and hideous uproar. At first I beheld nothing but a seething blur of luminosity, but then shapes, all infinitely distinct, began to detach themselves from the confusion, and I saw, was it Ron Romero? But God, I dare not tell you what I saw. Some power from heaven coming to my aid obliterated both sight and sound in such a crash as might be heard when two universes collide in space. Chaos supervened, and I knew the peace of oblivion. And that's it. He wakes up uh, later on in his cot. Some, so if he passed out there, fainted there, someone took him from there back to his, back to his bunk. Or maybe there was something more supernatural going on there. But that, that very vague description is, is this horrific thing. He can't even describe it. Just in the, in the same way he can't fully describe what happened to him uh, in India or doesn't want to. He, doesn't, he can't quite get there. And I think that's, that's on purpose here. And certainly Lovecraft is capable of doing that, um, but he's doing this for effect. And, and it's part of the creepiness of the story because we can't quite grasp what happens and nothing is really fully explained here. Everything is just hinted at and suggested. And I, and I really, really like that about that story. So in a way, in these later stories, we get full, more full explanations, but I still think this feels like some of his later stories in that you have this network this global network of, of cultic traditions that go way, way back. Um, I mean, I guess in Dagon, you had a suggestion of this too, and that somehow the human tradition of Dagon is rooted in the worship of, from that, that, are, that even predate humanity, worship practices of other creatures that predate humanity. Um, but anyways, so he wakes up, he finds the lifeless body of Ron Romero, with the camp doctor, and he's dead. And they do an autopsy. They can't find any reason why he should be dead. Um, you know, and then conversations suggest they never left. Romero and the narrator never left the bunk, which, you know, we have some ambiguity here anyways, it seems to me. Now, the reports of other people seem to be that no one brought them back. So if they were out at this abyss then they were brought back by supernatural means or someone's lying um, but that doesn't seem likely in this situation so from the perspective objective perspective over the night over the during the storm Juan Romero just healed over um, and, and died for for no reason um, now the storm had the has the effect then of caving in the the mine and they're unable to get back at it. And their suggestion is that a thunderbolt, a mighty thunderbolt, did this. But the watchman also mentioned he saw the thunderbolt, he heard the coyote and the dog and the wind. So those sounds were real. Those sounds that they heard were, were real. So it's not necessarily a dream. Um, and he ensures he doesn't doubt the, his word. So they do some investigations near that, and they find now, instead of an abyss, they find limitless extent of solid rock, which is, of course, impossible for one lightning or one storm to 
fit, fill in an infinite abyss with a limitless extent of solid rock. Finding nothing else, not even gold, the superintendent abandoned his attempt. So they just give it up because it's not profitable to mine here anymore. But um, yeah, wild stuff. The last weird thing that happens is he loses his ring. The ring is gone from his finger. And he says, I really feel good that this is gone, but nevertheless, it's valuable to him. So he call, tells the police, he does a search, and he can't find it, and it's never found again. Um, he doesn't think it's stolen. He says, I doubt that it was stolen by mortal hands, for many strange things were taught me in India. Again, a really oblique reference to, to India. And uh, the story ends like this. My opinion of the whole experience varies from time to time in broad daylight, and at most seasons, I'm apt to think the greater part of it a mere dream. But something in the autumn, about two in the morning, when winds and animals howl dismally, there comes from unconceivable depths below a damnable suggestion of rhythmic throbbing. And I feel that transition of Juan Romero was a terrible one indeed. Um, so what do we have here? We, we have a confessional. Our narrator telling the story, the story he locked up inside for at least 25 years, finally telling it before he died, leaving it to prosperity. And it's a story that tells us nothing that we need to know. It doesn't tell us what was below the surface. It doesn't tell us why that pit was there. We don't know what happened to him that night, what happened to Juan Romero, what's the deal with the voodoo ring, or the, sorry, not the voodoo, the Hindu ring. Um, what's the deal with Huitzilpochtli? What's the relationship between India and the ancient Aztecs? None of this is explained. So this document serves essentially as, a, as another cave-in of that infinite abyss. It has the same function. It hides whatever truth is there. It, it only makes the briefest of suggestions. And we know the narrator could have given us more information. The narrator had, he knows more than he tells us, right? He tells us what he needs to for his conscience to move on with his life. But he doesn't tell us what we need to know, and he doesn't tell us nearly enough to, to even put this story together in a meaningful way. Um, but that's what kind of makes this story so mysterious and fun and, 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 and kind of wild. So let me wrap up. A lot of great stuff here. We got the first really clear Atlantic story here, dealing, given the, the importance of the Spanish conquest in the, the original Spanish settlement of this region eventually gets conquered by the U.S., of course, and that's where we're at. But the, the, the interracial frontier, the survival of Indian people, as well as Indian traditions and beliefs. Uh, we have a global narrative, actually, with the inclusion of India here, which is Lovecraft never did before in his stories, um, except maybe in Dagon. You can make the case that there's some relationship between whatever's going on in the Pacific in that story in prehistoric times and the, 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 the cult of Dagon in, in Mesopotamia. Um, now, just a quick aside here about these, these gods. I mean, the people who study like the Indo-European languages, they, my understanding is that there's, of course, words. We, we know there, that the Indian and European languages are connected um, you know, because people studied it for over 100 years now. And they know Sanskrit and Latin have a lot of cognates and a lot of gram grammar, forms, gram grammar forms that are similar enough to make it impossible for these to be different language families. All right. But we also find certain like words for gods kind of get passed around. Right. So like the 
the Sanskrit name for sky god sounds a lot like Zeus or Jupiter, right? Like Zeus Pater Pitter is like sky god, and you got Jupiter, right? And that's very close to the Sanskrit name for for um, their sky god or whatever, you know. Um, so, and there's even like some motifs of gods that are similar in, between the Indian tradition and the Greek and Roman traditions, or even the Norse traditions. So that the the point being that as these languages spread, so did certain concepts and mythology, and they get watered down and changed over time, so they become harder to to see on the first like to see them obviously as similar, but there seems to be some relation there, right? So traditions can carry far. That's the point I'm making, and then we, there's evidence of this, not just in the age of European exploration. In previous times, earlier times, there's evidence that concepts of the divine mythology can move very, very far. And so maybe it's not unplausible. Well, maybe it is, you know, prehistoric, uh, not even human cults. But, you know, that guy who wrote, the, the narrator of Dagon thinks there's some relationship there. It's much more plausible than that, that there's some relationship between Hytopoktali and, and the Hindus, I guess. Maybe going back to like before Native American people were, you know, even migrated from Asia to settle the Americas. Who knows? Or maybe it's this underground network of caves. But anyways, it's great. It's wild. And I love it. Um, you got that. You got some some race stuff. Um, you know, he doesn't really do a discourse on race here like he normally does in some other stories. He's just, you know, clearly he, he kind of has some bad words to talk about Mexicans in general. Um but that's all to make a point that this guy is not of Mexican blood. He's pure indigenous blood. Um, we got a working class hero. and Well, hero. He doesn't do much heroic. But a working class narrator. Anyways. Uh, great. Yeah. Those are some of the main themes. I, I may have missed some in my recap. But it's all on the episode. Everything I talked about, I think, is important here. So um, that's my thoughts on the transition of Juan Romero. A really fun story. And if, if you've read some later Lovecraft work and never got to this one, I urge you to check it out and, and tell me what you think. Or if you have read it before, give me your comments about it below or send me an email. 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so next up, next up we have a, a Dreamland's Tale, The White Ship. Kind of a Dreamland's Tale. I know some of the locations mentioned there show up in later Dreamland stories. Also a story of the sea. So that's important. I actually, I kind of made a big deal about this when I wrote an article about Lovecraft a few years ago. I made a big deal of the white ship, um, especially the idea that the sea is, a, the sea itself is a conveyor of knowledge. Um, but yeah, I'll, 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 next time I'll give my thoughts about the white ship and we're getting to the end of this first kind of unit. Um, three, four more stories, including the white ship. And we'll, we'll take a break from the stories for a while and get into some of his nonfiction writing. I'll take a little bo literal break. I record these. Um, I've been recording these one a day, but not uploading that fast. So, so I can take breaks where I kind of collect my thoughts and do some reading, you know, process my thoughts before kind of recording a whole nother set. Um, but anyways, we're, we're coming to the end, so uh, it's going faster than I thought. But these stories are short. Uh, what were we going to do when we get to the big stories? I don't know. We'll, 
we'll think about it then. So anyways, that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time when I talk about the white ship.